Uh, good morning, everybody. If I haven't met you before, my name is Grant. Welcome to Christ the King. Glad you're here. So last night, I was in the Commons, and a friend of mine walked up and said, so I know better than to ask you who you voted for, because I'm going to ask a better question. What are you praying this week? What are you praying? And I'd like to answer that question. I'm praying that the people of God would understand that this Tuesday, regardless of results, Jesus Christ is not abdicating his throne. I believe that to be true, and my prayer is that the fear, the tension, the stress, and the conflict that we have experienced over the last five months will disappear in a greater appreciation of the sovereignty of God, knowing he is fully and completely in control. Can I get an amen from somebody this morning? So let's be praying together. Let's do the job we're supposed to do as good citizens, but let's pray together. And knowing this is a great opportunity to trust God more. As we continue in our series, if you're breathing, have a pulse, and have ever interacted with another human being that was breathing and has a pulse, you've probably experienced what I call the moment. The moment happens when in an undisciplined second of stupidity, you say something that ignites a spark of conflict in another human being. The words come out of your mouth in slow motion, and the second they emerge, you try to grab them out of the air and put them back inside of you, but you learn once it's been said, you can't unsay it, and those words light a fire of conflict that burns out of control. It's the moment when you respond to a text thinking you're only responding to one person, only to find out that your commentary just went out to a whole group of people. And the words that were meant for one suddenly find a larger audience, and that innocent little green or blue bubble sparks a conflict that just explodes in your face. It's the moment when you're supposed to be the parent in a relationship, and your brain glitches, and you regress, and suddenly you turn into a fifth grader in front of your fifth grader. And the conflict that happens leaves a mark on their soul that they will be in therapy all the way until they're your age. Yay! I'll never forget one of my moments. I've had many. I'm carrying groceries into our house. This happened several years ago. I had to step over a, a series of glass jars that had been placed on the back, uh, on the back step. Laurel had told me when she placed them there the day before, could you please put these glass jars away? But I hadn't. And now, with arms full of groceries, I am slipping and falling because of the obstacle. And she makes a simple comment. If you'd put the jars away yesterday when I asked you to, and it happened, out of my mouth come words. I said, you could have put them away. I don't know who nailed a piano to your butt. I'm like, no. <laughs> Thank you for being godly. Saturday night pretended like they had never, ever said anything dumb in their life last night. They just sat here and judged me. That's what happened, all right? I remember going to bed that night. I'm 12 inches away, but the silence between us seemed like the width of Texas. And it's that kind of a moment that we're going to find Mr. and Mrs. Solomon in today. We're going to find them in the middle of a conflict. They're having a moment. No one knows exactly when the moment happened, but it appears to have happened right after they had a very romantic evening together. Oh, how quickly things change in a relationship. Isn't that true? 
So I want you to listen to this commentary on a moment with Mr. and Mrs. Solomon. It's inside of your program. We're going to walk through part of chapter 5, part of chapter 6. Next week we're going to cover a little bit of 7, a little bit of 8, and then we're going to move on to a brand new series called Blessed. But in chapter 5, the Bible says this. She's speaking. Mrs. Solomon is speaking. And she says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Let's just stop there for a second. You ever been there, married people? Trying to sleep, but your heart's boiling because you're angry. Your body's tired, but your brain won't let you rest because you're in full-on combat mode. And in the back of your mind, you hear a Bible verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Laurel and I joke, if we had followed that principle to the letter of the law in our first couple of years of marriage, we wouldn't have slept for months. So, just a word of advice. Sometimes the best thing you can do in a conflict is to stop, agree when you're going to pick the subject up again, go to your corners, get some rest, because I know the futility of trying to solve a deep issue at 3 a.m. in the morning. Sometimes it just doesn't work. So she's sleeping, but her heart's awake, and then this happens. Remember, it's poetry, okay? It's poetry. It says, listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, sister. Okay, don't let that freak you out from last week. That's cultural. That's called, he's just saying, you're my family, you're my blood. Okay? He says, my darling, my dove, my flawless one, my head is drenched with dew, my heart with the, or my hair with the dampness of night. So she's tossing and turning, and he shows up. In the middle of the night, what is, what is she struggling with? We have no idea, but we know that it's pretty intense because of her response to him. She says, I've already taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? She's saying, I don't want to come to the door. I'm done. Leave me alone. She says, I finally got comfortable. Now you show up and my heart gets all riled up again because there's conflict. Verse 4, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handle of the bolt. Some of your translations say door latch. We'll talk about that. He's on one side of the door. She's on the other. And they're having a moment. Verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. What's going on here? They're experiencing a conflict, and it appears to happen right after the honeymoon. So let's just get this picture in our head. What's going on here? She can't sleep, okay? Tossing and turning. He shows up. Really important note. If he shows up, it means at some point he left. Makes sense, right? Leaving for the sake of leaving in the middle of a conflict is not wise, and it's most certainly not godly. Okay? Now, be careful here. Stepping away for emotional safety or physical safety to collect your thoughts with the other person in full knowledge that you're stepping back in order to cool things down with a plan to step back together again, that's unbelievably important. But just ditching and running, it never, ever accomplishes anything good. Then it says he wants in. So he comes and knocks at the door. Come on, sweetheart, open the door. Open your heart, let me in. But she says, no. She says, no. She reacts instead of responds. We're going to park here for just a minute, okay? For the record, healthy conflict is a part of every human relationship, okay? It happens. In fact, it can be really healthy. Healthy conflict is like fire. It can burn away junk in your relationship. It can also shed light on lots of things that are running around in the shadows of your relationship. 
When the fire of conflict burns, you've got two choices. You can react or you can respond. If you react, you add anger to the conflict and it burns out of control. That's why the Bible has so much to say about our anger issues. Proverbs 27 verse 4. Anger is cruel and fury is overwhelming. Some of you have experienced that before. It's overwhelming. Anger speaks mean words and emotionally floods people. If you need more help on that, we do this thing called the Seven Principles Workshop. Pastor Melanie, Pastor Kevin Leader, we have seen marriages healed through that workshop. And I just want to encourage you. It does, you, don't even having, you don't even have to be having a bad moment. Sometimes it's just go, good to go and work on those relationships, even when they're in a healthy spot. James 1.20, my dear brothers and sisters, so that's for all of us. Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Many of us know that verse. Do you know what comes next? The Bible says because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. You can't get to godly with reactive anger. It's not possible. Has anybody else noticed that it's really hard to be angry and not sin? Or am I the only one? I just seem to hit a tipping point and all of a sudden I'm just full on sinning. Ephesians 4, therefore each one of you must put off falsehood, speak truthfully to your neighbor for all members of one body. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Did you hear that? The whole verse says you need to speak truthfully. And I don't know about you, but as a married person, it's really easy to lie when I'm angry. I use words like you never, you always, I didn't, you can't. Just think about that. You always, if they've ever done it one time in their lifetime, you just lied. But we just throw those words around. I call them the great lies of relationships. The Bible says you're allowed to be angry, you're just not allowed to sin while you're angry. When you react instead of respond, I have seen this to be true. You get hysterical, and then you get historical. Ah... Reacting in anger always escalates the issues, and pretty soon, you're unlocking a filing cabinet in your brain and pulling out files from two centuries ago, where your where, where your partner proved that they were a human being, and you're going to use that. To, you're going to throw that file at them because you want them to know one thing: you're evil. That's what you want. And way in the background, you hear Jesus reminding you of Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is not easily angered, and love keeps no record of wrongs. And in that moment, you wish Jesus and Paul would mind their own business. In every conflict, you bring a can of gasoline or a can of water. When you react, you pour gasoline on the fire and it explodes. When you react, you make the issue about you. Your sin becomes the focal point and the language changes. Suddenly, your partner is the enemy and you brand them that way instead of recognizing your relationship is under siege. Your partner's not the enemy. The devil is attacking your relationship. And you should lock arms and fight with him, not each other. You know, it's almost as if Solomon knew something about this. Proverbs 18, he says this. A brother wronged is more unyielding than a fortified city. Disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Words are flying, and you're a prisoner, because once you say it, you can't unsay it. 
Sometimes you say it and you can ask for forgiveness afterwards. You can even be forgiven. But the wound is there. And it can stay there for a really, really long time. When you react, you lose reason and perspective. There are times I get more and more angry. And here's what I actually expect. I expect Laurel to suddenly start agreeing with me. (laughs) You ever been there? It's like all of a sudden she's going to go, you know what? You're right. Everything you're pointing out right now, you are absolutely 100% right. I totally get it. I am the wrong person and you are the right person. I don't think so. When we react, that's an option. But there's another way. We learned about it in week number two. It's a way that's kind, loving, gentle, and understanding. Do you remember those four words? Proverbs 12, 18 says, the tongue of the wise brings healing. So we can react or we can respond. I heard a conflict resolution expert speak one time, and he said, unhealthy conflict is like tennis. Both players take up their own sides, and they start just lobbing the ball back and forth at each other. But every time it comes across the net, they return it with just a little bit more heat. And it starts to grow and grow and grow. He said, the healthy and more mature person in the relationship is the one who refuses to hit the ball back. And instead puts down the racket with great fear knowing that they may get hit, but walks to the net and holds their hands out and says, can we talk about this? So she reacts. And let's not judge her, okay? Because this is not gender neutral. Both sides can get it wrong 100% of the time, okay? In this case, she reacts. So she says, I don't want to come to the door. I want you to go away. And then he responds. In chapter 5, verse 4, he actually makes a repair attempt. The Bible says, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. So he responds. When we respond instead of react, we pour water on that fire. When we respond, we leave room for God. Because when we react, you know what we want? We want revenge. What does Romans say? Don't take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's anger. Does God's anger burn against these two people? Absolutely not. He burns against these reactive reactions that are actually making their relationship fall apart. Responding leaves room for both of us to admit, you know, we may have some work to do. So let's review. She can't sleep. He shows up. She says no. He makes a repair attempt. And then they get stuck. They get stuck. Verse 5, I arose to open for my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh, on the handle of the bolt or the door latch. So he reaches out, and she finally has a change of heart. She moves, but only as far as the locked door. So get this picture. There's an inch of wood in between the two of them, but it's there. Let's stop for a second. When we're in conflict... Somebody has to open the door to reconciliation. When we're locked in, and there's a concrete wall between the two of us, somebody's got to open the door. Somebody's got to remove the barrier. I mean, think about this. An inch of wood is separating them. In my experience working with married couples for 27 years, it's a half an inch of pride and a half an inch of selfishness. That's what keeps them apart. They're so close, but pride says, I'm right, you're wrong. Selfishness says, this is about me, not about you. And it keeps them from opening the door. Let me just be super blunt today. Some of you are stuck because you're stubborn. 
I'm not opening the door. They need to open the door. I'm not saying I'm wrong. They're wrong. I've got a question for you. Is your stubbornness wrong? Is your pride wrong? Would you rather be right or reconciled? If you don't get anything else today, get three words. Open the door. Open the door. She finally does, but he's gone. He backs off, chapter 5, verse 6. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left, and he was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he didn't answer. And some of us look at that and go, well, that's unfortunate. Apparently, they're not going to get there happily ever after. But that's not what happens because the story's not done yet. She continues to pursue. She stops in the middle of the conflict and something happens in her brain that we often forget. Boy, this is a great clue of what to do in conflict. She stops for a second, takes a step back and starts remembering back to the man she fell in love with. Remember last week we had this description? He checks her out from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. And then she does the same thing. She starts at his hair and works her way down. She remembers who she fell in love with. Not the physical outside, but the heart inside of that human package. When I work with couples in conflict, especially if they're really, really fighting, I mean, they're having a knockdown, drag them out right in my office. I always ask them in the middle of it to do this. Can you tell me about your first date? Drives them nuts when I do it. It's so much fun. <laughs> tell me about your first date. And then they start talking. And pretty soon there's a softness there. Yeah, I remember the first time that I saw her. Man, she just... She just melted me. And pretty soon they start softening in their body posture. And somebody builds a bridge. And then we start heading in the right direction. So she reaches out. He reaches out. She, she's on the, uh, locked on the other side of the door. She opens the door. He's gone. But she begins to pursue him. And this next section is a little confusing. It's a dream sequence. She actually dreams about going out at night and, and running into the watchman, and the watchman actually hit her, which is not right. But it's inside of her dream sequence. Okay, culturally, it's understandable, because if you were out that late at night as a lady, you were either a criminal, you are either a thief or a prostitute, one of those two. Okay, it doesn't make it right in any way, shape, or form. But this, this dream sequence, she's wounded, but she keeps seeking the one who her heart is moving towards. She's looking for him. She wants to be reconciled, so she doesn't give up. At this point in, this, in the story, she's the hero. because She's looking to put things back together again. And she knows something about him. If he was to retreat and go and gather himself, she knows him so well, she knows exactly where he's going to be. She knows they love each other. So now the door's open. And she goes after him. Chapter 6, verse 3. She says, My beloved has gone down to his garden, to the bed of spices, to browse in the garden and gather lilies. Verse 3. I love this. I'm my beloved's and he is mine. He browses among the lilies. She's having a moment where she goes, this, this temporary conflict is not going to overrule the love that we have for each other because I remember at one point he chose me and I chose her. So she reminds herself of that. There's no mention of getting out. They're not looking to try and get out. They're looking for a way forward. So she moves in his direction. And when they see each other for the first time, an amazing thing happens. The conflict disappears. 
Anybody else in the room ever had a moment you reconciled and cannot for the life of you remember what got the conflict started? You have no idea where it came from. It's that insignificant. She finds him. And listen to him talk when she shows up. Chapter 6, verse 4. You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling. As lovely as Jerusalem. As majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They are overwhelming me. Here's what he's saying. Can you stop looking at me that way? Because I'm getting all hot and bothered right now. That's what he's saying. He's saying to her, you know what? You're beautiful even when you're angry. So what just happened? She makes the first move of reconciliation. Wow, good for her. She's the first. Be the first. Be the first to reach a hand. Be the first to say, I was wrong. Try and compete with each other to be the first person to open the door of reconciliation. That's godly. Secondly, she remains committed. Chapter 6 is 2 and 3. Don't take the easy way out. When you're in conflict, press into each other. Laurel and I say this a lot. Everything that comes into your relationship will bring with it the opportunity to either drive you together or drive you apart, and you get to choose which direction you go. And then chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, he opens his heart again. Even though he disappeared, he comes back. He's a beautiful picture of not being stubborn. And then this happens. Chapter 6, verse 10. Their friends are watching this whole thing go on. They're kind of like the peanut gallery, right? They're just kind of watching what's going on. And then they see the two of them reunite. And here's their commentary. They say, who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession? They're saying, here they come, here they come, here they come. Watch this. Isn't it beautiful when two people that are at odds with each other reconcile? It's just a beautiful moment. He begins to talk in verse 11. I went down to the grove of nut trees to look at the new growth in the valley to see if the vines had budded or the pomegranates were in bloom before I realized that my desire set me among the royal chariots of my people. She moves, he moves, and then they move together. I can say this as a married human being. The best part of conflict is making up. And that's the way it should be. I don't care if it's married conflict, single conflict, conflict with a, a co-worker, parent-child conflict, parent-adult, parent conflict. I mean, I don't care what form it comes in. God is honored when we literally live out our job description as ambassadors of reconciliation. Because we're supposed to be the ones who go first. So let's wrap this up. Their friends are watching them come together. And then they say this, come back, come back, O Shulamite. I'll translate it. Mrs. Solomon, come here, come here, come here. Come back, come back that we may gaze on you. And then he interrupts and goes, oh, whoa, 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 hold on. Why would you gaze on Mrs. Solomon as on the dance of the Manahim? People are like, what in the world does that mean? I had to do a lot of research to figure that out. The dance of the Manahim literally means a dance of two companies, okay? So here's what's happening. They're reconciled, and then it goes on public display because all their friends are watching, which is an amazing testament to their love for each other and God's love for both of them. But then he kind of puts up his hand and says, you know what? Um, 
we're going to finish this conflict, but we're not doing it publicly. We're actually going to do this privately. Because Mr. and Mrs. Solomon and I, um, well, we're going to finish this privately, if you know what I mean. Do you know what he means? Yeah, okay, good. All right. So they finished the conflict privately. They're not going to dance publicly anymore. They're going to go become one flesh and make sure that the conflict is completely and totally resolved. So here's some practical help for all of us because we're all going to face conflict in our relationships. If you're not, somebody's lying. So let's just walk through this together. When you're fighting for love, and by the way, this is all review. You've heard it already. When you're fighting for love, number one, respond. Don't react. Take a breath. Calm down. Think before you speak. Don't return fire. Pick up a can of water and put out the flame of anger. Respond. That's what Jesus would have you do. Secondly, pursue oneness. Somebody's got to build a bridge. Unity is what God wants, and unity is what the devil hates. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it. I did a search in Scripture this past week. I could find no place in Scripture that ever mentioned obedience in the context of how you felt about it. You're just supposed to do it because that's what God wants. To obey is better than sacrifice. So God says, this is what I want. I want you to pursue oneness. You can pursue oneness in a parent-child relationship. You can pursue oneness in a friendship to make sure that, that your hearts are aligned and that there's no tension between the two of you. You can do it in a marital relationship. You can do it in any relationship. Thirdly, don't get hysterical or historical. The second conflict happens, don't plan a way out. Plan a way forward. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Don't unlock the filing cabinet. True spiritual discipline and maturity is when you can leave the filing cabinet locked. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. And fourthly, initiate reconciliation early and often. When we're willing to do that, it's amazing what kind of walls will just disappear. It's amazing... I just like them. <laughs> it's amazing how God is honored when we choose this. You know how I know that? Because of the example of God the Father. When I came to Jesus, if anyone had a right to get hysterical and historical, it would have been God the Father because my sin put Jesus on the cross. I mean, let me ask you just a really blunt question. What would you do if someone killed your kid? What if you knew every bad thing they had ever done wrong? Would you want to move towards them or would you want to punish them? God's standing and there's a door in between us. And I promise you this, the only reason there's a door there is because we put up a barrier. And God stands on the other side and says, I, I, I have opened the door through Jesus. 
and you don't deserve it, but here's what I'd like to give to resolve this conflict. I'd like to give you the gift of forgiveness, restoration, and renewal. That's how bad I want a relationship with you. How beautiful is that? To think that God would stick his hand through the door latch and say, I want to be reconciled with you. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care all the wrong things you have done. I want to forgive that through Jesus. You know what I love about Jesus is he never asks us to do anything he wasn't willing to do first himself. So he says, you need an example to make things right in your human relationships? Just watch this. I want to reconcile with you. So to those of you who are parents and you have a wayward kid, be the first one to make the phone call. To the family member who's been sitting in silence for way too many years, be the one to write the letter. To the spouses who fought on the way to church today, be the first one to extend your hand. To everyone who's been wrapped in the conflict of the last five months, lay it down. Reach a hand to Jesus and reach a hand of reconciliation and let's do this God's way. When that happens, there's this really cool thing that kind of floods in. It's called hope. Hope for marriages, hope for friendships, hope for families, hope for a country. Let's go there and do that. Just like these two. Would you pray with me as we close this morning? God, thank you for a beautiful picture of reconciliation. Boy, do we need that today. I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room, Lord, whatever or wherever the conflict may be. May may they be the first one to respond in a godly way. God, in a room of this size, I know there are for sure some here who have never been reconciled to you. They've never had that moment where where they opened the door and said, Jesus, would you forgive me for all the wrong I've ever done? They've never experienced what it feels like to be washed as white as snow. They don't know what it feels like for their sins to be forgiven. God, I pray right now in this moment that they would pray a simple prayer. It says, God, I want to open the door to a relationship with you. Would you forgive me for everything I've ever done wrong? Would you walk with me in friendship as the Lord of my life and the King of my existence? Jesus, I have nothing to bring you but brokenness, but I thank you that you're not going to give me what I deserve, but you're going to give me love, hope, forgiveness, and freedom. So I give my life fully and completely to you right now. Thank you for wanting to reconcile with me. In Jesus' name. So God, I pray that today out of this would flow reconciliation that affects every relationship, both spiritual and human. And may we live to our job description of being ambassadors of reconciliation. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory for everything you accomplish. And all God's people said, Amen.